This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. The problem is, is for many Christians today, we want to pick and choose what we do for God and what God calls for us to do. We want to pick and choose those things that are comfortable to us, those things that are pleasing to us, those things that we desire to do. You see, we don't have the understanding that, no, a slave says, all that you command, I will do. And there's no question about it. Another thing that the dialogue would be is, wherever you lead, I will go. Paul writes a very pointed letter to the Romans. Little did he know that even today we would still be benefiting from the truths he shared. Paul understood the depth and meaning of what a slave is. We'll see the analogy he used of a bondservant as an example of how we should be as Christians today, fully and voluntarily surrendered to our Lord's will over our own. We are sinners, we are slaves, and yet we are saints. Stay with us as we hear how all three of these come together. Let's join Pastor David in the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 1 for part 1 of our message entitled, Sinners, Slaves, Yet Saints. This morning we're going to jump into our study in the book of Romans. We uh, did the introduction last week, and we uh, spoke quite a bit about the fact that Romans is really the goldmine of Christian doctrine. That within the book of Romans, there is so much richness that's there that it would do every one of us a lot of good to be a continual student of the book of Romans, just simply because there's so much richness that's available to us there. The dynamics of uh, Christian doctrine that are spelled out in the book of uh, Romans are more precise, concise, and uh, within the book of Romans probably than any other book that we have within Scripture. It's just so well laid out. And I believe it's because Paul, not yet having been to Rome, knew that they needed some instruction, knew that they needed direction. The Christians that were there in Rome, for the most part, they believed that they probably came back to Rome after having been in Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when, again, so many uh, came to Christ at that point of time. They were there during the time of Pentecost only as visitors. And after they had become believers there, then they went back home, for them would be Rome, and started establishing, uh, again, studies there and church groups, house groups together. When I say that the book of Romans is the goldmine of Christian doctrine, a lot of times people get kind of anxious about that D word, doctrine. Can't we just love Jesus and kind of forget about all this doctrine stuff and just love Jesus and move on? The problem is, is no, you can't, because doctrine simply is teaching. And it's like C.S. Lewis said, and I read this quote just this morning, so I'm probably going to really blow it. But in essence, he says that those that don't have good, solid doctrine will believe anything and come up with a lot of bad understanding or bad teaching. You see, we gain our doctrine not from the teachings of man, but from the teaching of God's word. Man can and has, through the years, through tradition of many churches, come up and said, well, because our leaders have said thus and so, then that is now our doctrine, that is our dogma. But you know what? We have no other doctrine and no other dogma than what the Word of God declares. And that's why, again, Paul wanted to make sure that the church in Rome understood the necessity of right belief, right teaching. 
Because if you don't believe the truth, folks, you're going to fall for a lie, and you're going to be misled because of it. When we looked last week, we looked at the outline, and uh, the outline of the first half of Romans, and it dealt with the areas of not only the introduction that we'll look at this morning, but sin, our own need for redemption, salvation, the very provision that God made for us through redemption, sanctification, the very effect of redemption, how, again, because of our redemption, we are now sanctified. We are being sanctified, and we will be sanctified. It's both a present, it's an ongoing, and it is a future situation for all of us. In the second half of Romans, we're going to look at the sovereignty of God, the fact that God reigns over all of his creation, and third, or next, the, the service, the, the fruit of our redemption, that because we are redeemed, because we are sanctified, there needs to be a fruit of that redemption being shown and demonstrated. And then finally, the conclusion. And it's interesting, the conclusion, Paul gives greetings to about 30 different individuals there at the end of Romans. People that he knew some way or another, either through travels that they had had or through letters that they had interacted together with or from him knowing of or about them. A very personal letter, but yet a letter that's very powerful and power-packed for us. I titled the message, Sinners and Slaves, Yet Saints. And you know what? That's what they were in Rome. And guess what? That's what we are, too. We're sinners. We're slaves, and yet we're also saints. How can all three of those things come together at the time? Well, hopefully you'll stay with us for the next few minutes, and uh, we'll be able to explain that to you. Turn to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. Paul begins with giving who he is. Uh, This is Paul. It's me that's writing you. The great thing about the letters that we have in the Bible, we know who's writing it right up front, whether or not it's going to be worth reading or not. Sometimes we get letters, and uh, I think that maybe in the 18 years that we've been here, maybe only one, maybe two, okay, but no more than a half a dozen or 20 or 50. Uh, No, probably probably only two in the whole time that we've gotten letters from an individual that didn't sign it. You know, like the anonymous letter, and they want to make sure that we get the ministry fixed the way that they figure it ought to be fixed. But yet, they're not bold enough or brave enough to put their own name on the letter. So, just in case you ever think of sending a letter, if it's not signed, it gets ripped up. So, uh, I pay no attention to that. Paul signs it right at the very beginning. He says, Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to faith, among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the very first thing that Paul gives as he introduces himself is he calls himself the bondservant. Your version might speak of the servant or the slave. The idea and the understanding is, Paul knew that he was a bondservant of the Lord. We talked about what a bondservant was a little bit last week, but let me remind you, a bondservant was one who gave himself freely to the one that he had been a slave of. That for some reason, either his 
uh, freedom had been bought or the time of his service had been fulfilled, but now he chooses out of his own will to serve that one. And they say that uh, then they take him against a wooden post, drive an awl through his ear, and then put a ring there, and it's a sign or symbol of being a bondservant. Paul knew what servants were all about, what slaves were all about. You know, for us in our country, it's been well over a hundred years when we've had to deal with the issue of slavery within our country. And so, for the most part, we really don't understand what slavery is all about. The population of the entire Roman Empire during the time of Paul was probably in the neighborhood of between 12 to 15 million people. And it's estimated that during that time of Paul, this first uh, century, was that there were somewhere between one-fourth to one-third of the population of Rome were slaves. Now, that's a lot of slaves. When one-third of your population being slaves, say if there were 15 million, 5 million slaves. It's interesting that the slaves themselves normally didn't dress a whole lot different than the normal citizen. And at one time they tried to make a law to say that, no, the slaves need to be dressed in certain attire until they realized that, no, if we did that, suddenly all the slaves would realize how many slaves there really were, and there'd probably be a real uprising. So they said, no, let them dress as normal citizens, but we'll know who our slaves are. Paul understood what that was, and as he says that he is a bondservant, he uses the word doulos in the Greek, doulos, meaning that slave. But he knows that not only the slaves there, but he speaks of the reality that we, as the church, are also slaves. When he speaks to the church in Corinth or writes to them, he writes these words, that for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, you and I, as believers, are also now slaves. We are slaves to Christ. We've been bought with the price, the precious price of his blood. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. We're no longer freedmen. We are slaves of God. It's interesting that slaves had to learn a whole new dialogue. And the dialogue that you learn as a slave is totally different than what you speak now. You see, because slaves use the dialogue of not my will, but thine be done. They don't say, I'm going to do my own thing. They have to change their dialogue and put it, no, it's not my will, it's your will be done. Along with the understanding that as a slave, if I were to say, no, you know, master, I want to do my own thing today. You know, this is, this is kind of a special day for me. I, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to do your will today. How long do you think that that slave would hang around? What kind of response would the owner have on that slave? Well, at best, he would be disciplined, and at worst, he would be killed. You see, as the owner of a slave, particularly during the Roman Empire, you were more than able to do anything you wanted to with that slave. If you wanted to beat that slave, he's your slave, do with him whatever you will. You wanted to mistreat that slave, do with him whatever you will. If you wanted to kill that slave, there was no law against killing a slave. And so when Paul uses that word about us and about himself, understand the dynamic of all that's there and how foolish it would be for a slave to say, you know what, I want to do my will. No, whole different dialogue for a slave. It's not my will, 
but thine be done. Also, the dialogue of a slave would be, all that you command, I will do. All that you command, I will do. Not just part of it. Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll do part of your desire in my life, but I'm only going to go so far. I'm only going to be obedient to a point. It's interesting that even Jesus Christ, the very God in flesh, declared that all that you have commanded me to do, Father, I've done. All that you've directed me, I've done. He understood what it meant to be under that authority. And the problem is, is for many Christians today, we want to pick and choose what we do for God and what God calls for us to do. We want to pick and choose those things that are comfortable to us, those things that are pleasing to us, those things that we desire to do. You see, we don't have the understanding that, no, a slave says, all that you command, I will do. And there's no question about it. Another thing that the dialogue would be is, wherever you lead, I will go. Wherever you lead, I will go. Lord, I'll serve you here, or I'll serve you there, but Lord, I'm not going there. No, 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 no. It's interesting. When we first moved to Casa Grande, we talked about the fact, well, you know, we're we're in Casa Grande, but praise God, the Lord didn't lead us to Ajo, you know. And now the Lord is opening doors in Ajo for us uh, to be able to minister. And I'm so glad that Robert's there to go and uh, minister at Ajo, but I'm more than happy here in Casa Grande. But the fact is, the truth is, is if God were to call, I'd be an absolute fool to say no. Number one, if I'm a slave of his, I go wherever he says to go. And the other thing that I've heard and that I've really held on to is that even a paradise is hell if God is not there. If you're not under the will of God and under the direction of God, I don't care where you're at. It's not going to be a pleasant place. See, a slave says, wherever you lead, I'll go. Not giving God choices. Lord, I'll give you four or five different places that you can send me, and you just pick one of those that you want me to go, and I'll go to those. No, that would be absolutely foolish, wouldn't it? And yet, unfortunately, in the practical sense, many believers respond and work that way. One of the other dialogues that slaves have is, not for my pleasure or comfort but for thy glory. Lord, I'm willing to follow you as long as it's comfortable for me, as long as it's pleasing to me. But if it gets to the point of uncomfortableness, if it gets to the point where I'm pressured, where I'm under pressure, or I'm under some kind of stress in serving you, then I'm going to back out, Lord. I'm going to back out. And many believers, unfortunately, today, particularly in, in our society, in our country, serve the Lord under comfort. They find a church that's comfortable. They find a, a, an area of service that's comfortable. Rather than getting out of their comfort zone and allowing the Lord to use them in a mighty and a powerful way. You know, the best place that you can be in serving the Lord is in a place that you are uncomfortable. And it's all God. It's God that's doing it all. As we look at what God speaks and moves and works in our heart. We have to be willing to say, Lord, it's not my will, but yours be done. All that you command, I will do. Wherever you lead me, I'll go. It's not for my pleasure or comfort, but it's for your glory. You know what? You will never, 
ever experience the fullness of all that God has for you in your life. Unless this is part of your dialogue. Unless this is the understanding that you have that I am a slave of the Lord. And it's not about me. It's totally about him. One of the other ways that Paul identifies himself here in this first verse is that he says that he is an apostle. An apostle. Well, we spoke a little bit last week about the fact that not only were they the original 12 apostles, but remember uh, Judas was no longer, and then Matthias came along, so that brought back to 12. And But then Paul came along, and there's now 13, and how many apostles are there? Are there 12 or are there 13? And we can get into all kinds of discussions about uh, what authority Matthias had compared to the other apostles and stuff, but that's not where we're going. I In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the 12 apostles. And I look at the life of Paul and I see the authority and the power that he had and that he demonstrated to the church. And I realize God is using Paul, mightily, how he used Matthias, again, we don't have record, but that doesn't mean that he did not use him also in a mighty and a powerful way. There were other apostles, even beside those twelve, and we can read not only in the book of Acts, but also in Corinthians where there are others. Barnabas at one time is called an apostle. There's a couple of others that were called apostles or of well-renowned among the apostles, debatable, rather they were Apostles, they were talking about them, but there is even that gifting and calling of apostle that we see today when we read in 1 Corinthians. Well, what is this deal about being apostle? Well, first of all, Paul understood that he was called an apostle. Some of your versions might say called to be an apostle, but really and truly the to be, the verb to be is not there. It is the fact that he was called an apostle. It was calling of God. Not that it's going to happen. No, he was called an apostle. He knew that this is what God had for him right then at that moment, at that time, the very Greek words, uh, kletos apostolos. Again, not speaking of something that's going to happen, but the reality called an apostle. One of the writers describes it as saying that an, he was an apostle by vocation, not of human choice but a divine appointment. In other words, what he's saying there is, it wasn't just a hobby, it wasn't just a part-time deal that on occasion, uh, when the need arose, he, he became an apostle, that normally he was just a regular guy, and but when the need arose, he suddenly rose up and took on the, the, the cloak of an apostle. No, it's who he was. We look at what that apostle is, and the, the very word apostle means that he's a delegate especially uh, an ambassador for the gospel, officially a commissioner of Christ, that messenger that's one that is sent. You see, in the office of apostle, they had authority in the church. They had authority in the confirmation and the declaration of doctrine within the church. And when we have the word of God, we look at these and we look and see, again, the, the depth and the integrity of what they wrote, the importance of what they wrote. And we see, man, this is the formation of the doctrine and the foundations of the church. But you know what? Even beyond that, an apostle is also one that is sent, one that is sent out. The very word really describes those that we would call today as missionaries. We would call a missionary one that is sent out, a, a messenger. 
He's an ambassador for the gospel. Wouldn't all of those fall in the same place as a missionary? But yet we don't use the word apostle for them, I believe, because in many churches, in many traditions, they still use that word apostle as being one of some great power and some great authority that, again, comes and and wields authority rather than simply being a messenger and ambassador for the gospel. Are there apostles today? Yes, I believe that they are. They are the sent out ones. They are the ones that are ministering the gospel in every area. I look at Robert being sent out to Aho. He's ministering out there. But I told him last night, I said, I'm not about to call you an apostle, brother. But in reality, you are covering that job, that position. I look at Mike Reardon ministering over in Sacatone. Again, serving and ministering the Word of God in another area sent out by this fellowship to serve in that area. Still doing that work and that ministry. Thirdly, Paul speaks about the fact that he was separated out. He says there in verse 1 that I was separated to the gospel of God. He was separated out for a purpose. And Paul understood that. He understood what being separated out was all about. As a matter of fact, when he writes to the Galatians, he speaks to them about the reality of his being separated out. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning actually in verse 14, he writes, that he was advanced in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries in his own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers. But when it pleased God, verse 15 says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace and then to reveal his son to me, that's when he began to preach and to minister the gospel. When was he separated out? Paul understood that it was while he was still being formed in his mother's womb. I believe along with this, he he took uh, along the the idea and the understanding of connecting with Jeremiah the prophet when Jeremiah declares that, man, you formed me and you fashioned me even in my mother's womb. And you had that plan and that determination that I was going to be a prophet even from my mother's womb. Jeremiah understood that. The important thing is for you and I also to understand that. That God knows who we are, even as he's forming us at the very beginning of the conception that we have. The unfortunate thing is many people believe that, well, like um, the, the Mormons or the LDS doctrine is, is that, no, we're all little angels up in heaven just waiting to be born. You know what? That's nothing that the Word of God speaks about. That is totally a doctrine of man made up. It's not true. We become who we are at the point of conception as God begins forming us and fashioning us. And that's another reason why abortion is such a horrendous crime against not only humanity, but against the very will and direction of God. Because even at that point of conception, God is forming and fashioning and determining and planning, and he has a future. He's separating us out for his call and for his reasons. Verses 2 and 3, he says, which he promised before, this whole idea that's gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He's speaking about the genealogical aspect of Jesus Christ. He was the seed of David. He came through the lineage of David. And we see this in the prophets of the Old Testament. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, and others who declared that, man, he is 
going to be from the bloodline of David. He's going to be one of the branches of Jesse. The throne of David will extend and go on forever. There will always be someone within the lineage of David who reigns and rules in Israel. The scepter of David will not pass away. All these prophetic messages of the reality of the genealogical aspect of Jesus Christ being of the seed of David. In the New Testament, we look at the books of Matthew and Luke, and we see the genealogies that are written there. Matthew, primarily, we understand to be the genealogy of Joseph. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We have services on Saturday evenings and two Sunday morning worship services, as well as other services throughout the week. For more information about service times, including driving directions, log on to TheOpenWord.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now, we want to be sure to tell you how you can get a free copy of this teaching. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. Our website has today's message available for you to download. For more information about The Open Word or Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, again, we encourage you to log on to TheOpenWord.com. Although The Open Word teachings are always available to you free of charge, if you'd like to help support this ministry, simply log on to our homepage at TheOpenWord.com and click on the support link to make a secure donation to this teaching ministry. Your donation can be set up as a one-time or regularly scheduled tax-deductible gift to this ministry. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in and may God richly bless you.